Okay, thank you for letting me know. All right, so the um, so the so uh, we're talking about achav here. Really, is the, is the setting now? In order to understand the, just to give a background, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that most of you, all of you, most of you, are familiar with the uh, with uh, the key uh, uh, the key uh, context of of Sefer Melachim. So I don't want to belabor too much what you already know. That's uh, that won't be exciting, but just to just to review the basics, I mean, we know that the uh, we know that the kingdom of, of Israel was divided after the times of Shlomo Melech into two kingdoms. You had the Malchut Yehuda, you have Malchut Israel. Malchut Yehuda are the descendants of David Melech, and Malchut Israel is basically a mess. I mean, it goes from uh, there's a lot of coups, there's a lot of, um, uh, of one overthrows the next, and um, it's not very stable for most of its duration in Mal- uh, Malchut Israel. The founding king of Malchut Yisrael is Yehovam ben Nevat. Um, Yehovam ben Nevat gets a, uh, gets perhaps is underestimated, but that's another story for another time uh, to learn about Yehovam ben Nevat and exactly what was going through his mind and what his, uh, what, his, uh, uh, what his character was. He's a little bit, he's more complicated. I think that we, we take, um, we tend to divide the world into uh, heroes and villains, which is a big mistake, and then simplify uh, simplify the uh, the characters and uh, and try to make them kind of one dimensional. And uh, in fact, the Chazal say that the that Bnei Israel were criticized because they did that to Shaul Amelech because Shaul really was a very complex character and he was really a tzaddik. Um, but that because his his righteousness was uh, overshadowed by his uh, obsession with David, that you know people only recalled that about his personality and his career instead of recognizing the, um, the positive accomplishments. And of course the Navi is not interested, as we mentioned in the Chumash uh, earlier, while we were talking about the Chumash, um, but the, the year, the many, many years of gaps that there are in the, in the narrative of Chumash, the Navi is not interested in giving us everything that Shaul did because really Shaul's story is only, only paves the way for David Melech's story. And the main purpose of the Navin discussing Shaul is to show us the flaws of Shaul. And the Torah Shebaal Peh comes in and basically tells you that he was really a Melech Tzaddik. Um, that you, know, you shouldn't think that because the flaws are what is focused on that that is really his essence. Um, and so we, we have to look at, now Yovam definitely is a bad king. There's no question about that, but he, he's chosen by a Nevi Hashem. He's chosen by Achiyah Shiloni, uh, who tells him, if you uh, follow the derech of Hashem and you keep the mitzvot, then you will uh, have this kingdom forever. So obviously he couldn't have been uh, such a bad guy. Yeah, yes, Mr. Carmeli. Uh, I have a question. I'm learning. Uh, it seems a lot of the kings had personal Nevi's. Uh, yeah, too. Uh, so how did Shlomo make the mistakes that he made? You know, there's no record. He insights as to why there was no Navi ever mentioned. Talking to Shlomo, but his mistakes. Uh, yeah, I, it doesn't. There, it's a good point. It doesn't say in any place that uh, Shlomo had any particular Navi that um, that was his uh, advisor. Um, that's a good, that's a good point. And there, one of the big differences, and I, you know, without going too far afield of what we're actually supposed to do, but, um, one of the big differences between David and Shlomo in terms of their character 
is that David is uh, really in his, in his, at his core is a very, very humble person. And uh, this is what the, um, what's emphasized about him, both in the Navi itself, in the way that he deals with his enemies and conflict, and uh, even in the way that he's portrayed in Tawash Ben Midrashim also, um, that he, and you could see through Tehillim and through his writings, that he, he has a, an, his Anava is one of his characteristics that's very pronounced. And Anava is always associated with, you know, with greatness in the, uh, in the Tanakh, because Anava means a person who has a realistic view of their place in the world and, uh, and doesn't get caught up in uh, fantasies about the world revolving around them, but instead is, is curious about the world and, and recognizes that, that they have, they're ignorant about many things and, and, and therefore conducts themselves in a much more careful and cautious and intelligent way. And so that's, that's why it's such an important trait. And so David Amelech was known for his anava. And obviously for his chokhmah also, but almost overshadowed by the anava. Even the uh, even when the Chazal portrayed David, they say, "Oh, you know, why was uh, why was why was Shaul's son called Mephibosheth? Because he was Mevayesh Pene David Balacha, you know. And David would always go to the person who knew more than he did to uh, uh, to to, to uh, gain more insight and knowledge. He was a person who always consulted." with those who he perceived as wiser than him. That's why, what does the Pirkei Avot even says about Achitofel? Achitofel was uh, my advisor and my, my consultant. You know, he, prays, he talks about Achitofel in such uh, grandiose terms because he taught him two things or whatever it says, you know, it says in Pirkei Avot. But the, uh, but the point is that David Melech was a person who really appreciated advice and has his anava was one of the themes that characterized his, uh, his life and his career. And the couple of times that he strayed from that are the tragedies of his life. One was in the situation of Naval, that he almost uh, killed Naval, but Abigail stopped him. And the other one was, uh, of course, in the case of Batsheva. But in every other circumstance, he, uh, that's why it was so tragic, the story of Batsheva, because it was so contrary to everything that David Amelech ever did. He never utilized his position of Malchut for personal gain. And he never even, uh, even the person who said they killed Shaul on the battlefield, he had them executed. And then whoever killed Ishboshet, he also had them executed. He had no tolerance for people uh, engaging in immoral behavior in order to please him because that only works on a person whose ego is very precious to them. So when people praise them or people put them on a pedestal, they reward those people for putting them on a pedestal. But David Melech is not that type of a person. Uh, so the one time that he got caught up in his own ego uh, and lost his perspective was really with Batsheva, and that led to a terrible tragedy. Um, Shlomo Melech is not really known for uh, being uh, particularly humble. Um, and uh, I, I would say Shlomo Melech was ex obviously an exceptional genius uh, and had enormous insight into pretty much every facet of life, but he also had very grand vision of what he was setting out to do. And um, that grand vision led him to make all of his mistakes because um, seemingly, seemingly Shlomo was under the impression that he was, I mean, I would suggest, and I think it's, there's a lot of uh, evidence to back this up, that, that Shlomo Melech was under the impression that he was actually the Mashiach, um, meaning that he was going to usher in the, uh, the golden age and the, uh, you know, the Geulah, 
And you could see that from the fact that, first of all, I mean, he built the Beit HaMikdash and he, uh, he had queens and, 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 you know, dignitaries from internationally, you know, coming to seek his counsel and his wisdom. He was, he was doing everything that the Torah describes when it comes to the Bachot in the Torah. He, he, he embodied all of it. He had the wisdom. He had all the, the economic success. He had the political stability and security and peace and, and, and he had nations coming to seek his wisdom and, and you know, Malkat Shiva, the queen of Sheba is the famous one, but that's just one example. He was an educator of the people as well as the leader and he never had any moment, Vatikon Malchuto Me'od, you know, the Navi says, you know, he was like uh, a very solid, very stable regime. And this explains why he basically got ahead of himself because he justified or he rationalized in the name of his, uh, vision that he was building an empire that he needed a lot of forces and he needed a lot of money and he needed to marry wives to 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 create um, what he would justify to himself would be um, alliances and relationships where he would be the one influencing the people on the other end because he was so wise and so sophisticated but ultimately that it didn't go that way it went the opposite way and uh, and and it it led him to compromise on his principles instead of uh, instead of the other way. So he to, he was not the kind of a person. In fact, it even says that uh, he wanted to marry Bat Paro, and he waited till Shimi ben Gera was killed. We all remember the story about Shimi ben Gera. I don't want to review every story in Tanakh with you, but you know Shimi ben Gera was the guy that disrespected David. David promised not to kill him. Shlomo Melech. But he, but he also in the in the famous Godfather scene of the uh, of the uh, of the book of uh, of Melachim, you know, where uh, David Melech tells Shlomo, kechokmatecha, you know, take care of this guy. Um, even he deserves, you know, he deserves something. And so Shlomo Melech works out a, a trick basically to uh, entrap uh, Shimi ben Gera that he will be killed. The um, the point is that the, according to the Chazal, Shimi ben Gera was the was the teacher of Shlomo Melech. And so that's why right after the death of Shimi ben Gerat says that, that Shlomo Melech married Bat Paro. And the Chazals say that he, I mean, you know, and obviously these Chazals, I'm not, I, I quote a lot of Chazals and I just, you know, put them out there. And it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm taking it in the historical literal sense. I'm just trying to give you, when the Chazals say these things, they're trying to teach you an idea. So they, they say that he waited for Shimi ben Gerat to die so then he could go and marry Bat Paro because he knew that, that Shimi ben Gerat wouldn't approve of it and that was his Rebbe. So, but the idea was that he, he saw himself as an independent authority is what the Chazal are saying. He didn't see himself really as kafuf and beholden to the advice of others because he was so smart and he, was, he had such vision. So my impression of Shlomo Melech as opposed to David is that David was... Uh, by his nature, a much more self-effacing and receptive to the insight and the direction of other people and much more of the team player, whereas Shlomo Melech was a bit more larger than life type of guy who kind of had his own direction. And he might have seen certain people as impediments to the realization of his vision, but not that he was necessarily uh, not ne then necessarily thought that they were right about what they, uh, you know, that he had anything to gain from their insight, more that he thought that, uh, that, that they would not approve and it would cause him political problems. And, you know, they, they didn't really know, uh, they weren't really as with it as he was. That's my impression. And, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, a lot of people out there who are very smart, oftentimes they think that they know better than everyone else. And, uh, and, um, yeah, 
wouldn't have listened to the Nabi? What happened? You think he didn't have a Nabi because he wouldn't have listened to the Nabi? I don't know. I, 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 my assumption is that there were a lot of Nevi'im around in his time. So um, because it was a time of great prosperity intellectually and also materially. And we also know that in order to, when, when Nevo'ah departs from Am Yisrael, it's extremely difficult for Nevo'ah to return because Nevo'ah is taught from uh, from teacher to disciple so if they if you so that's why in the times of Shmuel for example it says in chazon nifratz it was it was very uncommon for there to be any kind of a thing uh, like a navi to the point that Shmuel didn't even know when he was having his first nevuah what it was until an Eli basically knew based on textbook uh, you know he it, it was almost like Eli diagnosed that uh, Shmuel was having a nevuah based on what he knew that a nevuah would be like but not that he himself uh, had experienced it because the, the tradition of Nivu'ah had become so sparse. There were a few people called Isha Elohim wandering around, but very little. So um, in the times of Shlomo, the, my assumption is that there was at that point a very strong tradition of Nivi'im and Bnei Nivi'im who were the students that went back to the times of Shmuel and continued on from Natan and Gad and forward. Um, and this is the school that produced you know, later on Yishayahu and Yirmiyahu and so on, that there was a tradition there. So the, the question is, will the king engage the Navi or welcome the Navi into his court in order to receive the, the wisdom of the Navi? Or will the Navi be able to, uh, you know, will, will the Navi be able to convey his message to the king effectively? Um, that's that's going to be the issue. So it's going to depend upon the personality of the king. And that's actually an interesting segue into Ahav, because he's a rare personality in that respect, that despite all of his flaws, he actually does have a relationship with Eliyahu, which is the, the most bizarre couple uh, you could imagine, to extremes. But, the, uh, but Shlomo, my sense of Shlomo is that he wouldn't have been receptive um, because he was a great chacham. He wasn't like a guy who... Had a sense, didn't really have a sense of direction and felt uh, out of his depth. I think he was a person who felt very on top of things more than he actually was, maybe, and that led to his downfall. And of course, you have Rechavam, his son, children, uh, in especially in Tanakh, but also in real life, as all of us who are parents know, tend to uh, what we call in Hebrew mishakif. They 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 reflect the uh, in in large print all of the flaws in you. So um, it's a, uh, in the parents' flaws and zechuyot, zechuyot and avonot can be amplified in the uh, pers persona uh, of the children. So um, in the case of Rechavam, he's, he actually does take advice, but, but from the wrong people. And, um, and uh, because his, his friends, his friends in his cohort gave him advice that was uh, based on no experience whatsoever, and it ended up being disastrous. So uh, you know, it, it also depends who you take advice from. And probably Shlomo Melech felt he was the smartest guy around. So uh, taking advice would be uh, to his detriment. Who knows? But that's my impression. My impression is that it's not that he was against a Navi, that if a Navi told him a specific thing, that he would not believe it. But um, because you see that uh, that the Navi does talk to, there is a Nivu'ah about Shlomo that he's going to lose, that the kingdom is going to be torn in half. I mean, he, he, he must have gotten that, he got that message. I mean, I don't think that he didn't get that message. Right. And then he, was a himself, wasn't he? he had a Chalom. So, um, 
it's not clear whether he's considered to be a navi or not, because it's possible to have a to have true chalomot and not be a navi. So, or you know, so that's a whole other thing. But I'm like the Rambam doesn't count him as a navi. Some of the Chazal sometimes they do count him as a navi. It's not clear whether you know, but but he he had ruach kodesh, but I don't know that he was a navi. Um, Achia Shiloni was the Navi in his time because Achia Shiloni was the Navi that went and chose Yerovam to be the uh, opposition to, uh, and Yerovam was a troublemaker during the times of Shlomo. Not a troublemaker. I mean, he was like, uh, he was like a conscientious objector or whatever to policies of Shlomo. And he eventually ended up having his own following. And you can see from the fact, and I think it's important to note a Navi would never have chosen Yehovam ben Nevat if he was a Rasha. There's no way that he was a thoroughly a Rasha. It's not possible that, that Achiyah Shiloni would be sent by Hashem and Hashem would tell, would tell uh, Yehovam, oh, if you keep my mitzvot and you keep my Torah, then you will have this mamlacha forever. And he was a, a bad guy. It's not possible. Ah, so how did Yehovam go bad? Uh, it's very simple. Uh, put a person in a position of power and uh, make them insecure about holding on to the power and uh, you, you bring out the worst in them. And that, that's what happens. I mean, uh, I remember once arguing about it with, my, uh, with one of my teachers and I said to my, I was saying to my teacher that uh, Yehovah ben Neva was a bad guy. And he's like, really? I guess he was playing devil's advocate, maybe this teacher. But he said to me, uh, what about uh, Arona Kohen? He made the Egel Azav. Because I said to him, well, you know, I said, Yerovam ben Nevat, he made the Egle, you know, the, he made the, the two, um, the two uh, golden calves on the two, you know, you know, what he did was he basically demarcated the borders of Malchut Yisrael with the golden calves. There was one to the north and one to the south. And the idea was that you guys have the Bet HaMikdash with the Kuvim, you know, in one place that your Kedusha is limited, but our whole country is uh, Kadosh, you know, you know, and they didn't worship those Egleazav. It wasn't, the, during the times of Yerobam, they, was, they weren't worshiping, the, the, the making of those calves and offering of sacrifices outside the Bet HaMikdash was wrong, but they, they didn't really believe that those calves were gods. There's no indication that they did. I don't think that anybody believed that at that time. It was, uh, it was symbolic. And basically the Yerobam, and I, I said, so I said to my teacher, well, what about Yerobam? He made this, he said, well, what about Aaron Kohen? I said, yeah, but Aaron Kohen was trying to prevent the Jews from, you know, doing worse. So he did that. So that's what Yerobam was trying to, he said, Aaron rationalized that it was okay to make an Egel Azahab so the people wouldn't rebel against him. I said, that, and he said, that's exactly what Yerobam did. He said, I don't want the people to go back to Yerushalayim. Uh, for the for the Chagim because they're going to rebel against me, so I'm going to make these uh, these uh, uh, agalim. So what's the problem? It's the same thing. I wouldn't go that far, but he was. It, it's a good. It's a good point. I mean, the, he wasn't as bad as he's made out to be. Let's put it that way. There's a famous famous midrash. I'm sure you all heard that Yerovam when Achia Shiloni told him you could have this kingdom forever if you follow the mitzvot. What did Yerovam say? He said, "What about David?" Right. So he said, "David also will be." You know, you'll be with David together in Gan Eden. You'll be together with David Melech. And he said to him, really? Who will be in front? He said, David Melech. He said, forget it. I don't want right? So meaning that he had the possibility to be great, but he would have had to accept being the second best and not the best. He didn't want that. So that's, that's Yerovam. But 
that was the story of, and, and to remember basically what Malchut Yisrael did, I heard Rabbi Yol Binun make this analogy. I thought it was a really great analogy many, many years ago when I used to listen to his, I used to go to his shiurim when he would come to uh, New York and I would go from Maryland to New York to hear him because he had such interesting shiurim. I would go. So he, he said that basically what Yerovam Ben Nevat tried to do was make an Israeli identity independent from a Jewish identity. And so he changed things about the religion. For example, that Tishrei wasn't the, was the time of the Chagim of the Yehudim, the people in Yehuda. He said, no, we're going to make it in Cheshvan. He made it a month later, the Chag of the, uh, of the fall, a month later, to disconnect them from, to say we were different traditions, different minhagim. We, we have our own minhagim, the Israeli minhagim of Malchut Yisrael, Yisraeli, and you have the Malchut Yehuda, Yehudi, the Jewish uh, thing. And that's how we kind of like tried to separate the two people uh, from one another. That was Yerovam's time. Now, the issue with the, with the Malchut Yisrael. How do you do that? You're abiding by the Torah. Does the Torah say the Holy Yeah, he didn't really, he wasn't too worried about that. There was there was no uh, there was not there was not one king in Malchut Yisrael in the entire Malchut Yisrael history that ever followed the Torah or cared about it. Meaning, for them, it was it was it was a secular state. That's why I'm saying I think that the way Rabbi Binun put it was 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 very sharp. Like basically, they had an ident a nationalistic identity that was Jewish, but it was it was like kosher style. You know what I'm saying? It had trappings of Judaism, like they had, you know, holidays that were kind of like, uh, kind of like the Jewish holidays, kind of around the same season, but uh, not exactly right in order to make their identity distinct. And uh, what? Yeah, I mean, some people say that about Korach was, you know, but. Um, it was a, it was kind of a kosher style. That's what I, I would think of. In other words, it was like thematically, it, it riffed off of Judaism thematically, but it was not uh, essentially Judaism in the sense that it didn't adhere to the Torah. And you don't really see any mention of anybody at all concerned about the Torah or about mitzvot among the Malchei Yisrael. They really didn't have time to. And that brings us to where we are now. The most illustrious King of Israel was Omri. Um, the, the reason why he was, uh, even in secular sources, even in uh, you know non-biblical literature, meaning even in literature and and uh, inscriptions and stuff from beyond uh, the Tanakh, Omri was re recognized as a very very powerful and formidable king, who did. Uh, quite a lot. He was a very, very accomplished king. Now, of course, the Navi has no patience for that and just says he was a bad guy. But um, he, but in terms of materialistically speaking, if you're looking at uh, politically and materially, he was very, very successful. The most successful of the Malchei Israel up to his time. He built a new capital in Shomron. Um, and he, uh, but he did what was wicked in the eyes of Hashem, as the line goes always in uh, Sefer Melachim about just about everyone. And um, and uh, uh, continued with what uh, what uh, Yerovam ben Nevat did. Uh, but basically, what what really shows you and what made the difference between Omri and all the prior kings was that Omri, miracle of miracles, actually succeeded in passing the Malchut to his son. 
which was no small feat for Malchai Israel, because Malchai Israel, every single one is getting assassinated by somebody else, either one of the people that works for them or someone else. There, there, there's, it's a constant instability of the kingdom that, uh, is, you know, that is uh, characteristic of uh, Malchut Israel. So um, <coughs> Omri, being this very powerful king, who uh, actually managed to hold on to us to to revitalize things, to rebuild, to expand. He had expansion projects. He had building projects. He had a new capital, and so on and so forth. And uh, and he uh, he he was really a success story as far as the uh, everything uh, material is concerned. Uh, you know, for the uh, uh, you know looking at it from that uh, from that. Um, um, metric. So, and a, I think it was like 20 years uh, king, 18 years uh, king. So, which which is not bad for uh, one of the Malchai Israel. And his son, Achav, takes over afterwards. Okay, so this, this itself is remarkable because having a Mal- Melech Israel pass the Malchut to his son is remarkable and a very, very successful, very well-respected, powerful Melech Israel at that. Omri was a very powerful person. He passed it to Achav. Achav ben Omri, Malach al Yisrael, Bishnat Shoshim, Shmeshana, Le Asam and Chiyuda. This is part of what we love about, about Sefer Melachim. Constantly mentions back and forth the two lineages of the king so we can get properly confused and uh, lose, uh, lose our sense of what's going on. But the things makes it difficult. Asa was actually one of the better kings of uh, Yehuda. In, in, in Yehuda, the thing is, uh, Malchi Yehuda were a mixed bag. There were some that were decent, some that were good, and a lot that were bad, but there were at least some that were decent and good. There were really no, no good kings of, of, of Malchud Yisrael. Um, in fact, that's what makes Achav such an intriguing character. Because ask yourself, would you have lunch with Achav ben Omri? Would you want, you know, would you, uh, uh, would you go on a hike with him, you know? He's, he, he doesn't seem like that bad of a guy, you know? It's, and, and, and I think that we, we, he's a very complicated personality. There are certain characters in Tanakh that you really get a sense of the complexity of their personality. I would say Yoav ben Tzruya is another one. That it really, they, you, you can, it's very difficult to, uh, to label them. And Achav is one of them. In fact, Chazal say about Achav, Ohev Yisrael haya. He, he, was a, he was a very dedicated king to his people. He went out in the forefront of the battle when they go out to battle in the battle that he's killed, you know, but he goes out to, on the front lines with his people. You know, he was a very devoted king. In fact, we just recently came across the very famous uh, 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 Chazal in uh, Masechet Megillah that was in the Daf Yomi not long ago, but it's, it's pretty well known where it compares the... Um, it compares the uh, eulogy of Yoshiau to the eulogy of Achav. It says that in the in the you know in the times of Gog and Magog, there will be crying like the times of Yoshiau and then like the times of Achav. It's a very interesting, weird uh, uh, comparison. But the uh, but Achav was beloved to his people as like one of the uh, secular Zionist heroes or something like that. He was like Tov Lamut Badatzenu. You know, he's like one of those people who was like a dedicated Zionist who loved the Jewish people and was really, really devoted to them and to their well-being, but was did not have any connection to the God of Israel, only to the people of Israel. So he is. Other players in making a point to get rid of any that they're a completely. Why? 
Why, why such annihilation for this being described? Why the chab so bad? No, we're gonna see. We're, well, we're gonna see what he does that's so bad. I'm, I'm purposely trying to show you the side that is less in the front, in the forefront, because when you understand that, the question is, why didn't Eliyahu come talk to Omri, Melech Yisrael? Why do you wait for Achav, Melech Yisrael? Okay, why, why didn't you talk to Basha or one of those other uh, one of those other uh, Malchei Yisrael who were also crap? Why didn't he bother talking to them? He, so the answer is because Achav was receptive, was a potential student to Eliyahu Navi, and that itself, that Achav was willing to talk to Eliyahu Navi, I mean, and, and that Eliyahu Navi was willing to talk to Achav itself says something about Achav that he's not such a simple black and white type of a personality. And in, in fact, um, in, you know, we know that, uh, that, that there are times where the Nevi'im come and say, I wouldn't even talk to you. If we're not for Yehoshaphat, Melech Yehuda, I wouldn't talk to you. You know, sometimes there's, uh, you know, they, they, uh, they were harsh towards him. But the point is that they engaged, and Eliyahu and, and Navi in particular engaged with uh, with uh, Achav, and Achav has a very mixed relationship with Eliyahu and Navi. It's not like a davar pashut. So, what made Achav different than the kings before? Number one, he inherited a dynasty, meaning he had a stable kingdom. He inherited a a, a kingdom from his father, and and the truth is that stability of a kingdom is a double edged sword. Right? Stability. The truth is that all of the tumult in Malchut Yisrael up to this point, in a way, um, excused the fact that they had no spiritual life in, in, in Malchut Yisrael. Because who has time to reflect on the meaning of life, learn to all listen to a Navi or anything like that, when every other day there's another revolution? And it's like one of these African countries that uh, is in constant uh, turmoil and upheaval all the time. And they're always, uh, and they're having a regime change on, uh, on, on a monthly basis. So in, in Malchut Yisrael, there was an absence of stability, which in a way excuses the fact that they haven't really achieved anything spiritually also because they don't have the Yishuv Adat. All of a sudden you have a situation where there is Yishuv Adat, there's a, a sense of stability, there's a sense of, uh, of uh, uh, things have been consolidated and are under control and are being managed and uh, there's, a, there's no chaos. Uh, in fact, there's no chaos really during the times of Achab for the most part. And nor was there during the times of Omri. They were both very strong kings, very powerful kings. So what happens is that that invites either the best or the worst of times. Because stability and uh, that kind of a stability and control and not having to fear from upheaval or inner, you know, internal challenges, external challenges and so on can lead you to uh, higher ground, can be an opportunity, can be a platform for a genuine growth, or it can be a disaster because it can give you the license. In other words, it can, sometimes the chaos prevents you from doing bad also. So the, uh, so the question is, what direction are you going to go in with your newfound gift of stability? Are you going to go take that economic and political stability and channel it into something positive and constructive, or is it going to be destructive? And what ends up happening with Achav is, yeah. Like whether it's the duty of your expectant to then follow the right way, and if you don't, then you're punished even more harshly. Like the second year of Am has also stability in his way, and it's like everything is blamed on him, even though it seems like a pretty good king also. Here, the second year of Am. 
but he has stability and kind of like expectations when he has stability is for you to be positive. Right. Yeah, I mean, he, the, it, it's in a certain sense, presiding over a chaotic kingdom that's constantly, uh, you know, uh, sub, is constantly subject to existential threats from within and without, uh, gives you a reason not to be able to focus on, uh, on higher concerns, you know, whether those concerns are developing the country, uh, expanding the borders, uh, repairing, you know, uh, and, and restoring uh, whatever kinds of uh, institutions that have fallen into, uh, into disarray or, uh, you know, fallen by the wayside. Omri started that project of revitalizing the country, Achav inherits a country that's in the process of revitalization and is not under any threat right now. There's no chaos. There's the possibility to t- now take the country in a direction because it's it, it's he, the reins are in his hands. And that's what makes him different than previous kings of Israel that they don't have any time to listen to a Navi about Hashem and this and that. They, they're, they're fending off enemies right and left. Each one's being assassinated by the next one. So, the, um, so Achav is in a position where he has the potential to accomplish great things if he can, if he get, if he receives the right message, basically, if he's inspired with the right message, what's going to happen to Achav? So it says there, and, and he, he also ruled for a long time, 22 years. He did what was wicked. Um, he was the worst ever. That's a pretty serious indictment. It was too easy to go in the uh, way of the Yeravam ben Nevat, meaning that was nothing compared to what Achav would do. It was way worse. How so? This was the first time, okay? And, and, and it's, it's hard to believe when you read the book of Malachim and you see all the idolatry going on. This is the first time that there was actual institutional idolatry in, in Malchut Yisrael. There was, uh, there was like a tolerance for idolatry. There was, idol- there was a certain flirting with idolatry there in, in the sense of a cultural, uh, you know, to fit in culturally with the surrounding people and politically with the surrounding people, but actually to go and worship idols that we don't find any of the Malchei Yisrael ever did. In fact, even among and among the Malchei Yehuda, you don't find that until maybe Achaz, maybe and uh, Menashe. Much later in Jewish history, that happens in, in Malchut Yehuda. In Mal- among the Malchei Yisrael, they might have shown respect to idolatry. They might have allowed it. And you know, and and, and uh, welcomed it as a political move, but there was never any sincere worship of Avodah Zarah among the Malchei Israel. They didn't really believe in it; they just saw it as the political expediency. Whereas Achav was the first one to actually embrace the idolatry. He goes, it says, he went and he bowed to it, meaning he actually worshipped the Baal and 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 in a, you know genuinely. This is another thing. Right, he actually set up a state-sanctioned mizbeach for the Baal. Even when Shlomo Melech allowed his wives, let's say, to build altars to their gods, he never had a state-sanctioned idolatry in Israel. This is the first time. There was a house of Baal in Shomron. They built the house of Baal. So that's like a, a new and the, and Shomron was the capital of Malchut uh, Yisrael. 
So you're coming into the capital of a Jewish kingdom. And what is there? Is there a Beta Megdash? Is there a synagogue? There's a Beta Ba. It's like, and, and this is where the guy actually goes and he worships it. And so, Vayas Achav et Ashera, Vayosef Achav Lasot Lachis et Hashem Eloi Israel, Mikol Malchay Israel Ashera Yulfanap. He was more angering Hashem than any king before him, which is amazing because in the end he does certain things that you can't believe that somebody that's described that way would do. But this is the description of the Navi. He brings the Ashera. The Ashera was the wife of the Baal. The Baal is a husband, you know, Baal. And uh, he's a husband. He's the male god, and Asherah is the female. So he brought in the female god, the male, the female. He brought in, in other words, he innovated. He, they had the Baal before. He, he brought in new things. Vayosef, uh, Vayosef Achav. He, you know, he was, he's, he's trying to make it a, uh, he invested time and energy and money in, in building up Avodazara in Israel. So this is a new level because all the kings before engaged in whatever respect for idolatry was necessary for political reasons. But this is with a passion that he's doing it, you know? And uh, in fact, what does the, uh, uh, what does the, uh, uh, the, um, the Chazal say about, uh, about Achav? I think that they quoted here. I think that maybe the, um, maybe the, uh, the Radak might quote it here. Um, yeah. He does. Vayas Achav et Asherah. Amar Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan said, this is from the Radak, he says it. Shekotav al Dalte Shomron, Achav kafar belohe Yisrael. Lo yeh lo chelek belohe Yisrael. He wrote on the doors of Shomron, Achav rejects the God of Israel and he'll have nothing to do with the God of Israel. What would you say about a person who wrote that on the doors of Shomron? What do you think that tells you about Achav? You got to be a little bit of a psychologist. Would somebody who really had nothing to do with the God of Israel and didn't care about the God of Israel write that on the doors of Shomron? A person who had no connection to the God of Israel and didn't believe in it wouldn't write anything because they don't care and they don't have any relationship, and it doesn't mean anything to them, why would they write it? It's like these people who are anti, they're not just atheists, they're anti-theists. They have to go out and constantly argue and try to convert people to their atheism or convert people to their materialism. Convert to the, Why? Because they, they're so afraid that they might be wrong, you know? They, they have to fight against it. They have to battle against the other side and, and proselytize people on the other side in order to make themselves feel more secure in their position. A person who has to broadcast, he's, what, the, what are the Chazal really saying? They're saying he did all of these things. They don't really mean, I would say, I'm saying, you know, I don't take that Midrash literally that he wrote that on the doors of Shomron that I, I don't believe in the God of Israel. What it's trying to say is that all of his actions are so extreme that it's, he, it's as if he's doing it to escape from his Jewishness, Davka, because he can't, because he can't escape from it, because he's conflicted. A conflicted person, right, an assimilated Jew just won't do anything. But a, a Jew that is tormented by his assimilation will get the biggest Christmas tree and the biggest red stockings put on the uh a mental and all of that because he has to show how not Jewish he is, like, right? Uh, that, that's that's a, 
And so, so Ahav is, what, what the Chazal are saying is that Ahav is doing these extreme actions in order to demonstrate how not, how not connected to God he is. But in reality, what it shows you is that on a deeper level, he's very tormented by it. He's not so secure in that position that he's taking. You sound like I thought someone would say. Kind of like, um, like the George Soros types, like the self-hating Jew types. Yeah. I like, I like they're so, like, they feel so much guilt over eating Judaism, but they try to make Judaism out to be like the most evil thing, or sort of like view themselves as like evil. There, we got plenty of people like that. I, it's, you know, it, it's uh, a lot of them. If you want to find the, uh, you want to find the uh, biggest, uh, the, the professors that give you the hardest time uh, with the Jewish holidays, it's the Jewish professor. You know, the, the, the non-Jewish professor says, oh, it's a Jewish holiday, no problem. You know, you, you can't come in. No the Jewish guy, forget it. All right, what's the, um, the idea behind the Asherah being female and being a tree. Isn't and being what? A tree? I, I think it has to do with, uh, the thing is like a lot of the Avodah Zorah was sexualized. So they, um, so the idea of trees, you know, they bear fruit and uh, just like a woman bears fruit. I think that has to do with that. Um, I'm not such an expert in the Asherah theology, but um, that's my impression. It's the Ba'ar, it's the that was a Baal Pa'or. Yeah, this is a regular Baal. There was Baal Zevuv. There was Baal Pa'or. You know, there was... There was Baal was like, uh, you know, there's a lot of different types of Baal variations, but different... There was Dagon of the Plishtim that looked like a like a fish type of uh, person because they were seafaring people and all that. Huh? He, I don't think he was. I don't think he was a type of Baal, but the but they had Baal around at that time, so he might have been. It might have been like a variation. I don't think it says that it was, but it could have been. If I want to walk into a Baal shrine, what do I see? <laughs> what, a Baal shrine? I'm not sure. I think it really depended it's on how they worked. Is it a specific term for a masculine, uh, like uh, or is it a specific type of masculine? what of the Baal? Yeah, is it is it a genetic? It was the particular type of Avodazar of the Kenanim at the time. I mean, I think they, you know, and the, they that was the that was the common type of Avodazar throughout the time of the Shoftim and also through the time of the Melachim. Uh, that was the Avodazar that was prevalent, but you know, it took other forms. So you know, yeah, it depends. So I think that it, to a certain extent, it's a generic term because they uh, because they there were different variations on Baal, like a Baal Zivuv doesn't look anything like a um, another type of Baal, but they uh, they're all in sort of the same category. Um, you could they have found a lot of these. Uh, I, they they probably you, you found a picture of it. They have like uh, they found uh, icons of Baal and stuff like that from uh, ancient times that they've dug up from different uh, archaeological sites. They have a whole. Um, they actually have a whole uh, museum of the Plishti uh, uh, culture here in uh, not far from where I live uh, with all their, you know, they found a lot of their idols and stuff like that, but that's from the Plishtim. So they weren't Baal worshippers, they were Dagon or whatever. Um, but the, uh, the, 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 the idolatry was, you know, they would take whatever was fashionable in terms of the idolatry of the time. And uh, in this case, 
the Baal was the uh, was the common one. You know, the truth is that a, there there are a lot of like for example, El Elyon was not a, was a Canaanite god. Um, I know a lot of people don't like to learn that, but uh, they uh, you know a lot of the names even that are used for Hashem in the Tanakh sometimes they were used also uh, for idols like Elohim. Obviously, even El Elyon was used. Even some people say El Shaddai might have been used for uh, for uh, idolatrous gods and just gets sanitized and. And and uh, utilized for Hashem because it means God. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because he's trying to correct him. So, so what does that mean about? Does that mean that that Elyon God that the Canaanites were worshiping, that Abraham realized that they were worshiping something? Or the way they were worshiping was in line enough with worship of Adonai that he could have just inserted the Adonai name into it. My my impression is that what he what when the um when they said El Elyon, they meant the highest god of their pantheon of gods. Mm-hmm. And um and the difference between that and Hashem El Elyon is that. El Elyon by itself means that there's some relationship between the highest God and the other gods. It's a matter of degree that uh, he's better than the other gods. He's El Elyon. He's the best of the other gods, but basically he's in a category together with other forces. He's just the highest one, uh, as opposed to Hashem El Elyon, because Yudke Vavke means outside of space and time, means transcendent. So the, the superiority of HaKadosh Baruch Hu is not relative to... Uh, it's not because he's in the same category, but the best of the uh, other forces in the same category as him. He's in a totally different category. That's what the, the superiority of Hashem is that he's totally outside of any uh, category. So that he's, he's using the term El Elyon to say, yeah, Hashem is the superior God, but not in the way that you think of superior, meaning that uh, best in their class, you know, uh, but as a, a totally different category altogether of thought. Which is a totally abstract idea of Yudke Vavke, which is total transcendent, because Yudke Vavke is a Yaho Vaviye. Um, so any case. Yeah. Yeah. Also regarding Ahab's character, I think it's very clear also from later stories also that he's very influenced by his wife, correct? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So even over here it says that he married Isabel and then worshipped all of his stuff. So could be that she influenced him even to get into the, the Baal. Well, for sure. She probably got him into it. And she also uh, clearly imported a ton of Baal priests and stuff like that from her home country. She really was, yeah, Ahab was receptive to it. But it's like, it it really reminds me of one of those like very nebbish Jewish guys that marries like some Catholic woman and then becomes the biggest, you know, proponent of Christmas, you know, like, there's like, he's like, uh, He's in somewhere deep down, he's like uh, dealing with the fact that he has abandoned his heritage. Even the people who are, uh, even the people who uh, were before him, even the bad kings of Israel never went that far to like abdicate their Jewishness and become like a Baal adherent. They, they tolerated it. They, you know, they, uh, they might have paid some, you know, homage to it to, uh, out of respect to, for political reasons, but they didn't actually believe in it. I mean, they weren't, it, so it's like he really embraced it. It's like the old joke about, you know, you know, the joke about the uh, the three guys that they're walking by this church and it says, you know, become a come and convert. We'll give you fifty dollars. 
you know, so they each go, the first guy goes in, he says, okay, I convert to be Christian. They give him $50, he comes out. The second guy goes in, he gets a $50, he comes out. Third guy goes in and he's in there for hours and hours, you know, after his friends are waiting, eventually he comes out and he's like, and they said, what happened to you? He's like, oh, I became a Christian and I know that Jesus is my savior and this and that. They said, yeah, but, but what about the $50? He said, you Jews, all you care about is money. Yeah. It's a, it's a, but th that's the idea. Like uh, the guy who becomes a, a real convert. So um, as opposed to somebody who's doing it just for the money, the guy's doing it just for the money. It doesn't mean anything to them. The guy who is trying to show that they're not just doing it for the money becomes the biggest zealot. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, in the, in their newfound religion, like, uh, like the guy who debated the Ramban, you know, like, uh, the the uh, the Christian guy who debated the Ramban, who had been a Jew, and he became like the biggest Jew hater ever, um, in order to prove his uh, his worth to the church that he had to uh, become a rabid Jew hater in order to show what a what a good Christian he was. So the um, so you know, and that's what Achav becomes a someone who is anti-Jewish, but behind that anti-Jewishness is somehow an insecurity about the fact that he abandoned his Jewish identity. Uh, for this embrace of Baal. And, and you, that's what the Chazal are saying. They're saying this by Yosef Achav, like he was so into it, is really a, he's trying to run away from the torment that he's experiencing uh, inside, that he's in denial. Now this is fascinating. Okay, and this is the introduction to, uh, to Eliyahu. In his days, some person named Chiel Beta Eli built up Yericho. Now we know from the times of, of uh, Yoshua bin Nun, that was uh, forbidden to rebuild Yericho. And, and in fact, Yoshua bin Nun had placed a curse on anybody who rebuilds, Yoshua bin, uh, who rebuilds uh, Yericho, right? And the curse was that with his, with his, uh, he would lay the foundations and his firstborn son would die and he would put up the doors and his youngest son would die. That was the curse of, of Yoshua on anybody who would be, build up Yericho, right? What happened to this guy who built up Yericho? Now, actually, that's not true that uh, Hashem didn't say that, but Yahushua was one who said that, but it doesn't matter. The idea is that, um, that uh, the Navi means that because Yahushua made that pronouncement, it's like Hashem said it. So the, uh, he made that statement that the, anybody who rebuilds Yericho is uh, going to, their children are going to die. Now, whether it means that all of his children from oldest to youngest dies, or it means just the oldest and the youngest, it's not so clear. It doesn't matter. Um, the point is that the curse came true. Why is this happening in the days of Achav? Why did not Omri let somebody rebuild the ruins of Yericho? Why didn't Basha let them rebuild the ruins of Yericho? Why didn't any of the prior kings who were bad and didn't care much about Judaism allow the rebuilding of Yericho? Why did it specifically happen during the time of Achav? And no other person, no other king, no other uh, administration. Well, what did you? Yeah. Like remind them of the past, their connection to their heritage. Yeah. What was the whole like? What was the whole reason you weren't supposed to rebuild the home? They didn't want to. They were Jewish. They wanted to be Jewish. It seems like Ahab didn't want to be Jewish. Seems like Ahab's doing everything not to have a connection. Right, but what was the reason originally Yoshua didn't want anybody ever to rebuild the Yericho? What was his problem? Why, why would you let it go to waste? It's a nice land. Right, because it was the first battle, really, of 
of the kibush of Eretz Yisrael, and it was done by miracle. And the idea was it would be a testimony to the fact that Hashem was the one that really gave them Eretz Yisrael, and it was part of the divine plan, and it was not just a, uh, it wasn't just a military conquest um, that was done for material ends, but it was something that was done for divine purpose by a divine intervention. And that was supposed to be a memorial to that forever, and to rebuild it was basically to absorb it into the same empire building uh, materialistic uh, kind of a uh, venture that any other uh, any other building project would uh, would resemble. So the idea was that he wasn't supposed to, nobody was supposed to rebuild it. It was always a monument. It was like a national monument to our first battle when we came to Israel that reminds us that God was with us. It's like even the kings of Israel who were not much to write home about, as my mom used to say, you know, even those kings never thought to take a national monument and destroy and, and uh, you know, undo it and rebuild it into a casino or whatever, uh, whatever they wanted to do. They never would have thought of that because at the end of the day, it's a national monument. So even like you, you go to a national monument that represents something about the history and the foundation of the uh, of the nation. You don't mess around with it. It says something about the roots of the people and where they came from. And even if you don't 100 percent believe in exactly what it stands for, you don't mess with it. Right? But the idea is that in the times of Ahab, he was so bent on uprooting, eliminating the relationship between the Jewish people and Hashem, the idea that Eretz Israel, the settlement in Israel, the government had anything to do with God, that the possession of the land had anything to do with, uh, with Hashem or with Judaism, that even that he wanted to, uh, he, he wanted to uh, uproot. He wanted to replace it with whatever they built it, uh, built it up into. Okay, even though the curse comes true, the guy's children die as a result of the, uh, uh, as a result of it, which is basically, you know, a, um, w- the curse of Yoshua is to, as if to say, you know, you're trying to build, the foundation you're trying to build won't last. You're trying to, if you're trying to create a godless, uh, if you're trying to erase the legacy of Hashem's uh, uh, of Hashem's uh, intervention in Jewish in Jewish history, uh, your legacy will be erased. You you won't be able to pass anything down to your uh, to your children because you erased uh, the legacy of uh, of divine intervention in Jewish history. You know, so so his kids died, and 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 yet Achav is so is still set on his mission to uh, to try to obliterate to totally disconnect the Jewish people from God. That's why it's so ironic that somehow Eliyahu is able to interact with Achav because you would think he would be the furthest away from that possibility. It's precisely because Achav inherited such a stable kingdom and has such a consolidated power base that he's able to do all of these things. Obviously, if he had gone in the right direction, he could have accomplished tremendous good things. Instead, he's, he's, he's accomplishing terrible things. But he's trying to erase any vestige of Judaism, of godliness, of connection to Hashem, of connection to Torah from Israel and from the Jewish people. That's his objective. Why he's doing it? Well, we know that he's, he's basically a self-hating Jew, which means he's tormented by his own Judaism. And he's trying to escape from it by taking all of these actions outwardly to uh, fight against it. But that betrays the fact that inside he's very insecure. And what happens now here, right after the story, and this is remarkable, right after the story of the deaths of the sons of the guy, Chiel, who tried to build up Yericho, 
It says, Vayomer Tishbi. Out of nowhere. Who is Eliyahu Tishbi? Have you ever heard of him before? He never appeared in Tanakh before. And yet it just introduces him without saying who he is. Vayomer Tishbi, Somehow he has access to the king. He's able to walk up to him and talk to him. That by God, as God lives, the God of Israel that I stood before him, if there will be in these years any dew or rain except according to my word. That's what Eliyahu says. Now, we've never met Eliyahu before. We don't know who this person is. He's never been introduced to us. He's not a recognized character in any prior book or in any prior story. And he's just introduced as having this line, making this declaration that there's not going to be any rain in Israel for the coming years. Okay? Very strange. He's a mysterious character. He emerges mysteriously and he disappears mysteriously. That's the thing about Eliyahu. Very unusual. But somehow he has a, a, an audience with, with, with Achav. Now, why right after a discussion of the uh, rebuilding of Yericho would we hear these words from Eliyahu. Here, the Midrash really gives us, I, 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 one of my most favorite Midrashim in, in, in Nach, actually, uh, because I feel like it fits the text so beautifully. What would you think, in other words, what would you think if you saw Chiel's sons die right after the rebuilding of Yericho? What would the average person think? It came true. Obviously, there's a God that uh, God is real. And, uh, you know, we the, the curse came true. So obviously, there's something real. So that's basically the Midrash picks up on that. And it says that uh, what happened was that they were at the, um, and Rashi brings it, actually. Lama samchu, what, what, why did they put these two things together? Shehalchu Eliyahu ve'achav. The, the father, whose two sons had died when he was building Yericho. So Eliyahu Navi and Achav both went to the Shiva. See, Achav is a nice guy. He goes to the Shiva, pays a Shiva call, some random construction guy. You know, very nice of him. Amar Achav Eliyahu. Achav said to Eliyahu, Efshar she'kilata talmid how is it that Yahushua bin Nun's curse was fulfilled, but Moshe Rabbeinu's curse wasn't fulfilled? In other words, Eliyahu implicitly by going to the Shiva, and again, we're taking the Midrash on its face value just to understand. By going to the Shiva, what is Eliyahu really saying? I told you so. Look. You guys are going against God. The, all the terrible uh, curses are coming true. What does Achab say? Very nice that the curse of Yoshua came true. What about the curse of Moshe Rabbeinu? It says in the Torah that you're going to go after idolatry. It says that if the Jewish people worship idolatry, there's not going to be any rain. We're all happily worshiping idolatry, says Achav. And the rain hasn't stopped. In other words, Achav is playing back to Eliyahu. Eliyahu is saying, look, how can you ignore 
the testimony of reality that uh, uh, there was a curse pronounced on anyone who rebuilt the Yoicho and exactly that thing happened. How can you not see the hand of God there? And what does what is Achav answer according to the Midrash? What are you talking about? That was only the curse of Yoshua Binun. What about the Torah itself says that when we worship idolatry, there's going to be no rain. There's plenty of rain. The economy is booming. What are you talking about? There's no rain to worship. We're, we're worshiping idolatry as often as we can. We love it. It's the new thing. Achav is uh, passionate about his idolatry. What's the, uh, where, where's, the, uh, where's the lack of rain? Right? So according to that, see this Midrash, I love how the Midrash concretizes the idea. Okay? Basically shows you what a person would have thought. In other words, it, by giving you that story that they both met at a Shiva house, basically, and that's where Eliyahu gets up. At the, so Achab says, ah, if it's true that God really cares about what the Jewish people do, then how come it's still raining, even though we're worshiping idolatry? And right in the middle of the Shiva house, Eliyahu gets up and says, okay, but as Hashem lives, there's not going to be any rain. Okay, so uh, that's how the, that's what the Midrash is depicting. But really what the what the uh, what the Navi, what what it's showing you about the Navi is that this is why did the deaths of the sons of Chiel fall on deaf ears? Basically, why didn't they have an impact? Because people look at the big picture and they say, yeah, but ultimately everything is fine. And that's how people normally think. In other words, you can tell people miracle stories here and there and, you know, all kinds of different miracle stories, stories all the time. And they'll hear it and say, oh, that's a very nice story. But it's very rare that that's going to inspire somebody to change their life because they say, well, overall, you know, the world doesn't work like that. Overall, that's not how things go. And the fact is that, okay, Chiel's sons died. It is very unusual. It's, a, it's very weird that the, the curse of Yoshua came true. But the fact is that the, the Torah says a lot of things, right? And basically, our basic welfare is intact because the economy is booming. Yeah. up one of the interesting things about both the Eliyahu and the Elisha stories, which is that they do miracles kind of on their own initiative without any indication that Hashem uh, gave them the uh, permission to do it or gave authorized them or commanded them to do it. And this is one of the uh, one of the topics that the Mfarshim talk about quite a lot in in, you know, in discussing the stories of Eliyahu and Navi. To what extent does Eliyahu and Navi um, act independently in his uh, very, it, it, when you read the text, okay, I think the shot, there, there are some, there are some Mephoshim that have the following idea that they say that, well, really, if Eliyahu said that, it must mean that Hashem told Eliyahu to say that, and then Eliyahu is just being the mouthpiece of Hashem. How could it be that Eliyahu on his own could decide there's not going to be any rain? But if you read the shot of the story, and as we go through the story and see what happens to Eliyahu, that doesn't really seem to be the case. The other, most of the Mefarshim take the view 
that a Navi has the ability to, uh, to make certain decrees or to, or to perform certain miracles that further his mission, basically. In other words, the Navi is given a divine mission that he is then entrusted to understand and to carry out to the best of his ability. And one of the things in the toolbox of the Navi is the ability to perform certain miracles. It depends on the level of nevuah of the Navi, what extent, what kinds of miracles he would be able to perform. But that he is, a, he is able to perform miracles and is given that power uh, in, in, when it furthers his mission, it seems to be the, well. Yeah, I don't. I, that's something that I'm not sure we can know uh, from uh, you know as outsiders. But it definitely. The greater the navi, the further the power goes. The navi, I assume, would know what the extent was. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that even Eliyahu knew necessarily how far it could go because we're going to see later in the story that he comes into situations where he's not sure he has the ability to fix the situation, like resuscitating the dead kid. Um, the, the, the thing is that if you learn this story the way that the Mefashim that want to say that uh, Eliyahu really was commanded on every one of the miracles that he performed, it becomes much, much harder to follow the flow of the narrative. And, and, and the whole situation with Eliyahu and Avi becomes more difficult to understand what the issue is. It's much simpler to, uh, to when you read the story. I'm saying in terms of the pshats, it's much simpler to understand it that part of being in the V is the ability to perform certain miracles. And in general, the Rishonim, Assume that miracles can only be performed by uh, by Nevi'im. That's a, that's a sod really in most of the most of the uh, uh, Rishonim. Uh, the, and, and to the extent that the reason why Moshe Rabbeinu, for instance, was able to perform miracles at the uh, on such a grand scale, right? At the, all of the Otot and the Moftim, Asher Hashem, and etc. You know, Kol Yisrael. Those miracles were only possible because of the level of nivuav Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, that's how most of the Rishonim interpret. They say that there is a, uh, the Rambam, the Ralbag, etc. They talk about it at length, the Radak, that, uh, that there's a, uh, I think there, Ibn Ezra also, that there is a, uh, a correlation between the level of nivuah and the, the level of a miraculous intervention that it can happen under the auspices of that Navi. And that's why many of the Rishonim said that the miracles, let's say miracle stories that happen in the Gemara can't be literal because, uh, because they, didn't, they weren't Nevi'im and therefore they couldn't do re- actual miracles. Um, that's uh, that, that's one, of the, one of the challenges that the, uh, let's say for example, Rabbi Avram ben Rambam, writes in the, uh, he has a Mamar Agadot uh, that's uh, very worthwhile reading. I mean, it's, uh, I think it's in the En Yaakov in the beginning of the introduction. They have it in most printings of the En Yaakov or maybe all of them. Um, his, his introduction to uh, Agadot, really, really great, long read, but worthwhile. And in there, he talks about how 
the miracle stories that happen in the Gemara can't be literal. And he gives other, either it happened in a dream or it's describing a vision or it's not, or it's, for example, when Rebbe Zeran, Rabbah have the Purim Sudan, one of them, you know, kills the other one. He didn't really kill him. He just, uh, he just wounded him. And as it doesn't really literally, you know, he'll say that it's exaggerated um, because they weren't Nevi'im, so they couldn't actually do miracles is the assumption. Only a Nevi can do miracles. But what does seem to be the case when we're learning Pshutoshel Mikra is that basically a person who is a Navi and therefore has a divine mission that he understands what God's plan is, he is able to use his own intelligence to devise a strategy for achieving um, the objective that he's entrusted with achieving. And that could include uh, marshalling the use of uh, certain uh, intervention, supernatural interventions in the process of getting there. Now, don't get excited and think that means you have the ability to become a superhero because, um, you know, some people, you know, say uh, it only works in, you know, in the context of a divine mission. It doesn't mean then he could go do uh, other things using his uh, his superpower. He doesn't have a superpower. It's just that he's able to utilize, just like, for example, in Navi can break the Torah, can, can uh, violate uh, mitzvot of the Torah in order to further his objective. Um, for example, Eliyahu Navi is another example of that because he, he offers korbanot outside the Beit HaMikdash in, uh, within the Vie Habal, which we'll learn about later on in the story. So the, what, is, what is the rule in the case of the uh, mitzvot? That a Navi is allowed to uh, instruct people to violate a mitzvah, but only temporarily. He's not allowed to abrogate the mitzvah. He's only allowed to violate it uh, in, uh, in a particular circumstance. Why is he allowed to violate it in a particular circumstance? Because since he understands the objective of the, he's, he's related, the Navi relates to the objective of the Torah. So therefore for him, so in general, the mitzvot of the Torah are calibrated with the objective of the Torah. But there could be an instance where observing the mitzvah according to its technical formulation could actually hold you back from accomplishing the objective of the Torah. And since the Navi's job is uh, is really to further the objective of the Torah, not to, uh, not to relate to the laws of the Torah. He can't change the laws of the Torah. He's allowed to bend the rule of the Torah in order to, in a particular situation, uh, make sure that the objective is achieved more efficiently or more completely. Um, and that's, that's the reason why a Navi can do that. So that's the, only a Navi can do it because only a Navi can have the, the divine knowledge of what the real objective is, that he's able to take liberty to make a decision to override one of the laws of the Torah. What can he not do? He's not allowed to let you do things that are, like, he's not allowed to let you do Avodah Zorah. Why? Because there could never be any way, shape, or form that Avodah Zorah would further the divine plan. It's impossible. It, it, it could never be because by definition, the, by definition, the divine purpose is to eliminate Avodah Zorah and to, uh, and to promote Yehud Hashem and knowledge of God. It's impossible that Avodah Zorah would ever be instrumental to that. So therefore, if a Navi comes and says, Hashem told me you should do Avodah Zorah just this one time, you could kill him as a Navi Sheker because it's impossible that uh, that, that would ever be uh, uh, part of the divine plan. But any other means could potentially be. So therefore, the, uh, therefore the Navi is able to do that. And in the same way, because the Navi understands the uh, divine plan insofar as uh, human development or the development of the Jewish people is concerned. So therefore he's able to uh, tinker with the laws of nature also in order to bring the, uh, per the divine purpose 
to its, uh, you know, to, to its uh, objective um, more, you know, more readily. So the, um, in, because he operates in, uh, like the way that Eliyahu Navi says, Asher Amadzi Lefanav, because he has an understanding of God that is more advanced and of God's plan that's more advanced, his activities are going to be of a different nature and is, you know, than, uh, than obviously an ordinary person. But the, um, but, and therefore he's able, he has the ability to override some uh, laws, both of nature and of, of Torah. But the, uh, th- that's the way, that's what I would say is the shot of what it means. And you see also, see also, Moshe Rabbeinu, you see this phenomenon also, because what happens when he's talking to Paro? He says, I'm going to go pray to Hashem, and then he'll stop the Barad and he'll uh, do all the. Why does he have to pray to Hashem every time he goes to Paro, you know, with the Makot? He says, oh, I'm going to, why, why, why can't Hashem just stop it now? Why do you have to, uh, why do you have to uh, go ask Hashem each time and stop the uh, Barad or whatever? Uh, the answer is because Moshe Rabbeinu is the, the, the way that the hashkacha manifests itself, and this is an important yesod in understanding hashkacha v'ashem, that the, the hashkacha manifests itself in, uh, through the understanding of the gedolei ador, basically, meaning that Moshe Rabbeinu, the, the hashkacha will manifest itself in a way that Moshe Rabbeinu understands is the correct way even if it, there could be other ways. Why? Because since Moshe Rabbeinu is the one who is charged with explaining what God does to the people and leading and guiding the people, so his understanding is going to be the one that makes the, the, that, that makes the difference. That's why a miracle happening without a Navi present to explain the miracle doesn't have any significance, doesn't have any meaning. A miracle only works if the Navi, who is basically in the position of the teacher, says this miracle is going to happen and it's going to be because of this reason and that reason. And we need to do this as a, as a response to it. It only makes sense because the Navi uses it as an instrument to guide the people towards a greater understanding of God. Otherwise, it doesn't, it doesn't, have, any, it doesn't have any sense to it. And so, so that's why I had once explained about, you know, the stories of Choni Ame'agel or Rabbi Hanina ben Dosan, their tefilot are so powerful and all this from, you know, Masechet Tanit at the end. Years ago, I think we talked about those agadot, but the idea that, yeah, uh, uh, or the idea that you could go and ask somebody who is a great tzaddik to pray for you, which people find odd and they find strange. But the, yeah, but the reality is that um, Hashem's, that, that the, the great person who has a deeper understanding of Hashem's plan and wisdom, they are the person who ends up determining how the Hashkacha Pratit manifests itself, because they're the ones that are going to guide the people in their response to, uh, to their experiences. So in, in Eliyahu Navi's case, it's very similar. He's, he makes this decree because he's trying to put pressure on Achav and on the people, to, uh, to do Teshuvah. If there was no Eliyahu Navi there, it wouldn't do any good for there to be a, uh, to, for there to be a, uh, a drought because the people wouldn't respond to it appropriately. They, they would just say, oh, there's a drought, we're, we're in trouble. You know, let's go pray to the Baal some more. I don't know, they, they, they wouldn't have any framework through which to understand what was going on. Because they have Eliyahu Navi who can explain to them the significance of the drought that they're experiencing and what path they need to take to remedy it. So now it makes sense for him to be the one to either decide to turn the drought on or to turn it off. Because he's utilizing it as a means for 
the Jewish people to be educated and come closer to God. Same thing happens with the other miracles that Eliyahu Navi is going to do. But the uh, but that that's really the uh, you know the crux of it is that the Ashkacha is expressed there that the the Navi plays an active role in determining the form that Hashem's interventions take in the world because the Navi is the one who's charged with a pl- with developing a plan to lead the people towards the goal that Hashem wants them to uh, to pursue. So therefore he needs to have, it's like a teacher that you tell them, these are the instructional objectives, but you have to decide what your lesson plan is going to be, what materials you're going to use, how you're going to present it, what activities you're going to do, what the, like that's the job of the Navi to be an active partner in the process of bringing about, you know, whatever the results are. It's an, it's a, obviously it's a little bit more complicated with supernatural intervention, but obviously the, it's also important to note that, uh, before the times of Eliyahu and Elisha, we barely see any miracles. Really, they're the only ones who uh, perform a lot of miracles. Before them, you really don't see it very much at all. And I think that suggests you, what does that suggest to you about the level of the people at that time? It's not positive. Meaning the fact that miracles are necessary is usually a reflection of the low level of the people, not the high level. Because the high level people would respond to a message the lower level people need more dramatic, drastic, you know, interventions to wake them up. Look at the difference between the makot, let's say in the times of uh, Paro, those kinds of interventions were necessary to get Paro to respond, as opposed to what is, what is the biggest miracle Shmuel did uh, when he asked for rain to come during the uh, wheat harvest to show the people that Hashem wasn't happy with them choosing a king. What other miracle did he do? I can't think of any other one that he did. Right, so the so it's a it's relative to the level of the people, how much of a, uh, look at it this way, a teacher who has a class of kids who are very academic, they're very smart, they, they wanna learn the material, they just need a little bit of guidance, how many crazy bombastic activities does the teacher have to do in order to get learning to happen in the classroom? Not as many, right? If you have a group of kids that there, one kid is climbing up the walls, one kid is, is digging into this, the, you know, into the uh, ground, one kid is uh, uh, smashing the windows, I don't know, whatever. They're all over the place. So then in order to get those kids to engage with any kind of material, you're going to need uh, a more dramatic interventions. You're going to have to do all the kinds of crazy stuff that teachers today have to do to make their classrooms seem interesting to uh, disengaged kids. So uh, that's the uh, analogy, I think, to what um, to what the uh, what Eliyahu's job is. He determines a plan and he implements a plan. You know, and uh, and yeah, and then of course, and what's interesting and what, what supports this idea is that Hashem doesn't, it, it's a weird thing to say, but you don't get the sense that Hashem is a very big fan of Eliyahu. You know, he, they, they don't, he, it almost seems like Hashem has a softer spot for Ahab than Eliyahu sometimes, because Eliyahu is always placing pressure on Eliyahu. For exa- so Eliyahu, as soon as he makes this decree, So he has to run away. Eliyahu runs away to this place, Nachal Kurit. 
ואת האורבים ציוויתי לכלכלך שם. And I want you to drink from the water there, and I commanded ravens to bring you food over there. וילך ויעש כדבר השם, וילך וישב בנחל כרית, אשר פני הירדן, והאורבים מביאים לו לחם ובשר בבוקר ולחם ובשר בערב, ומן הנחל ישתה. So he had a very nice life over there because uh, he would have meat, he would have a bologna sandwich uh, every morning and uh, corned beef every night or whatever. It's bread and meat. I'm not sure what, what it was. And he was drinking from the uh, river. And why was it interesting? Look at Rashi, if you have a Rashi. So eventually, eventually, Yamim means what in Tanakh? When it's by itself? One year, right? So what, so after a year, right? There was no more. So even Eliyahu, Eliyahu got to live comfortably for one year while everybody else was dealing with the drought. Eliyahu was sitting by this uh, lovely uh, uh, river, drinking the water, getting uh, a free delivery morning and evening of uh, bread and meat for his uh, meals. And no problem. What does Rashi say? So, כדי שידע צורך הגשמים ויצריח לגלות שהיה קשה בני הקדוש ברוך הוא שישראל שלויים מתים ברעב. That he's saying that Eliyahu Anavi, he wanted Eliyahu Anavi to experience the drought by the river drying up because it was קשה בעיני השם שישראל שלויים ברעב. Hashem didn't like the fact that the people were hungry, so he wanted the Eliyahu to feel the hunger and the, and the drought. That suggests that Hashem was not 100% behind the idea of, uh, of, um, of, the, uh, uh, of this drought that Eliyahu was imposing. I mean, it's very strange. So Eliyahu is doing something. So that, that supports the idea that what Eliyahu did was on his own, independently, had the ability to make that decision how to convey his message to the people. What, you know, what method of conveying the message he was going to choose. That was his own decision, it seems like. And Hashem wasn't even, uh, wasn't even behind that decision, right? So he would, he would have to now move somewhere else. Eliyahu was going to have to move somewhere else. But the idea was, it seems like what's going on here? What is this a story of? Hashem sends Eliyahu to be by the river and to eat well morning and night. What's the, what, what, what's, what's the reason to do that? Why did Hashem do that? If Hashem didn't like uh, that what Eliyahu did, that he, uh, that he uh, imposed a drought upon people. So then why does Eliyahu get a special uh, uh, you know, uh, free delivery of uh, breakfast and dinner every single day for a year before Hashem decides to dry up the river and make a move? That seems like a, uh, it doesn't seem like, like such a bad deal. What, what's the what's the reason? What? Yeah, I, I guess yeah, but it it seems like a long time. I mean, a year of uh, a free uh, delivery, food delivery by the ravens. They also point out that ravens are usually pretty cruel uh, creatures. They're known to be not the friendliest creatures, and yet they're the ones bringing it to them. It's like uh, there's some irony there. But um, but he uh, but it, it seems like I, I would I would I would hazard the guess that 
with everything with Eliyahu, it's we see to a certain extent Eliyahu and Avi's own uh, maturing process that's going on that it would have been ideal. And I think this is always the case. It's a, the ideal situation for a person is that they come to an insight on their own. And it's with, with as little uh, pressure applied to them as possible, as little uh, pain as possible, that they're able to see something, see a truth on their own. And for Eliyahu to be sitting at this river, he knows what's going on in the rest of Israel. He, he knows that, uh, that they're experiencing a drought. He knows that they're hungry. And yet he's sitting and having his, uh, you know, and, and living comfortably. And the question is, will he wake up and say, wait a second, you know, I'm sitting here waiting for them to come to me. But how is that going to happen? How, he, he's not making, he's not taking initiative to reach the people. He basically made them an ultimatum. And he's like, when you guys are ready to shape up and, 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 and improve your act and uh, come let me know. Okay, so he, he, there's an indifference in Eliyahu. And at first, Hashem is giving him the opportunity and saying, look, you're, you, you're deserving of Hashkacha Pratit. You're Omed Lifnei Hashem. You're whatever, you're a tzaddik and all that. I'm going to give you everything that you need, even though the people are suffering with, uh, with the drought because you are entitled to that as somebody who's a tzaddik. But the, uh, the assumption was, or the expectation was that Eliyahu would realize, well, well, the people are suffering. What am I doing to help? I just sort of threw the gauntlet down and left them. I didn't really give them any way to follow through. So they were left in the lurch. And meanwhile, Eliyahu was sitting there by the river for a whole year. A whole year means that, see, you could sit there for a few weeks. You could sit there for a few days, a few weeks, even a month or two. And, and, and you could say, well, you know, he was waiting for something to happen. But after a year, that means that, that nothing's going to happen. You're just, you're just sitting there and allowing the situation of the people to worsen and not really taking any action to correct it. And that's the difference. In that way, Eliyahu is more reminiscent of a type of a Shammai versus a Hillel. Now, there are two attitudes in, in, in education. And I like to see the Nevi'im as educators, really, because that's the, one of their main jobs is to educate. And so if you think in education, there are really two ways to go about it. There is the way of high standards and you come to me, meaning I'm not going to lower the bar for you to jump over it. Okay, you, this is the bar. The bar is here. This is what's expected of you. When you're trained enough to jump over it, let me know. That's, that, that's the attitude of Shammai. That's why when Shammai, when the converts come to Shammai because they want him to, uh, uh, you know, oh, teach me the Torah on one foot or, uh, you know, whatever it is, he chases them away with a measuring rod. A measuring rod means there's a standard, right? There's an expectation. You're not, you don't live up to it? Uh, too bad for you. And that was the whole big uh, machloka that we talked about a few years ago, which was the hot topic of the uh, Rebbe Elazar ben Azariah Beit Midrash, or formerly Rabban Gamliel Beit Midrash, right? That, uh, the, the, what do you do? What is the best way to preserve Torah? Is it by saying, look, there's an ideal, there's a, you have to be rigorous and pure and, and, and a Harvard level uh, Lamdan and Toho Kibaro and everything perfect. And then you can come in because only then will we maintain the purity of our discipline that we only allow in the best of the best. And you have to live up to our standards. You don't like the standards. There's no affirmative action. There's no, uh, there's no scholarship. There's no other way in. It's too bad for you. Right. That's one way. The other way is to say, no, 
You have to go to where the people are. You have to reach where the people are. That was what Hillel was. Hillel was a person that wanted to reach to the people where they were and bring them closer. So he would always, he was always willing to uh, open up uh, to find where the individual was, where they, wherever they, wherever they were, uh, you know, in their development, and uh, and and lead them along a path, uh, starting from the point that they, you know, from their point of departure, not his own. He didn't set a standard and say, "Reach my standard." He he found where they were and then guided them along. That's really the difference between Elisha and Eliyahu. But I don't want to get to Elisha yet. Eliyahu is a person who is mid, really is about midat adin, right? Midat adin means that it, it, this is the standard. Midat adin means there's an absolute standard and you have to live up to it. You're going to be judged by it and you're going to be held accountable to it. And that's it. There's no negotiating. There's no compromising on the midat adin. That's Eliyahu Navi. So Eliyahu Navi is sitting there saying, look, I haven't heard from the people. They're obviously not taking any action in response to what I, uh, the drought I placed upon them. What do I owe them? What, it's my problem? It's my problem that they're still worshiping idolatry even after what I told them and what I, told, what I explained to them. Why is that my fault? See, you can understand where he's coming from. It's not so crazy what Eliyahu and Navi is, is logic, you know. In a way, sometimes you, you could even argue that uh, the other side is more difficult to understand. You know, from a pedagogical perspective, meaning from the perspective of an educator, you could say, uh, yeah, the, um, the uh, uh, you know, the, um, it, it's better to reach the people where they are, right? You could say that from the perspective of, uh, of an educator, practically, it's better to reach them from where they are. But from an idealistic perspective, you can understand why a person would say, I don't want to dilute the message. I don't want to water it down. I don't want to dumb it down. I, I, I want people who are serious enough to put in the effort to really do the right thing. Why should I reach them? Why should I, why should I lessen the, you know, the seriousness of the message or somehow soften it in order to cater to them? Right? That, that's the, that is the, uh, uh, you know, the logic of Eliyahu Navi. And you can almost uh, understand it because, uh, you know, he's, um, he's standing for the Dvar Hashem and he feels that it's my responsibility to uphold the Dvar Hashem. How, who am I to compromise? The, ir- the irony is Hashem is less concerned about upholding the Dvar Hashem than Eliyahu. And that's exactly what Hashem says to him later in the Nevoah that he has when he gets relieved of his duties. Hashem basically says, is it your altars that they uh, destroyed or mine that you're so concerned about? You know, wh- wh- why are you... Uh, and, and, and that's the... Uh, that's the the, the, I guess, enigma of Eliyahu Anavi. He's more zealous about God's kavod than Hashem. So it's... Uh, why, why Exactly what uh, it reminds me of, like you know, you could have like uh, so you have like sometimes like uh, 
older rabbis that have become very soft, you know, they become very liberal, they kind of let everything go. They're like, yeah, it's okay. And then you get a young rabbi who just came out of yeshiva and learns everything by the books. And all of a sudden they want to impose every rule according to the black and white of the Shulchan Aruch on every single person. And they uh, they go from one extreme to the other, you know? That's, that's, it's almost like that. It's like Eliyahu and Avi feels like, what, Hashem is just letting it go? I mean, you can't let it go. It's my job as a Navi. I stand before Hashem that I'm going to do the right thing. I mean, it's, it, Hashem is by default uh, giving me the responsibility to uh, intervene and make this better. That's, that's, the, that's the logic of Eliyahu and Avi. And you could see it. But the question is why? What, what was the alternative? What if Eliyahu and Avi didn't uh, do that? Right. So, Isn't it materializing? You're saying why isn't it? Right, right. It's it's a it, it's a difficulty, um, and I think this is this is what bothered Eliyahu Navi. Eliyahu Navi was bothered by the fact that people didn't take the take it seriously because uh, because it wasn't you know the, those curses weren't coming to be they weren't coming to pass. But the the, the question is was then I guess one way to ask. The question is, was there an alternative path for Eliyahu Navi in this situation? Meaning, we can't understand why Hashem decided not to uh, impose the klalot of the Torah on the generation of Achav. We can, it could be that he would have eventually. But Hashem is el v'chanun, el and he waits, you know, he doesn't... The, the idea of Erechapayim means that sometimes the, uh, the, the Onish doesn't happen instantly. The nature of, uh, the nature of Chet and Onish is that Onish doesn't happen instantly. Onish happens after a time. So a person has the opportunity to correct their direction before they get hit with the full brunt of whatever the Onish is. So it could be that because, it, because Achav achieved a certain stability in the kingdom, and uh, maybe, the, maybe uh, Achav had some, some potential, uh, there, there was more time maybe for him to reflect and to change his ways, or maybe, would have, or maybe it was already in process that there would have eventually been a drought, it just wasn't yet, who knows? So what, was there another alternative uh, available to Eliyahu? It's not clear. What is clear, is, as far as I can see, is that, there was no proactive engagement from Eliyahu. There was only a, there was only the klala from Eliyahu. And basically an expectation that the people would then change their ways based on the, uh, based on the withdrawal of the, uh, of rain. And that didn't work. In fact, even at the end of the drought, it still hasn't worked. So it wasn't effective is the problem. It, it, you know, it might have been justified, but not every justified action is effective. So, so even though he might have been right that, you know, it's, it's a, in fact, you could even, maybe it even answers your question. Why didn't Hashem impose the drought? Because it wouldn't have worked anyway. That it didn't work when Eliyahu did it. 
So, uh, so, so it wasn't, uh, it, it, it might've worked if Eliyahu, in addition to the drought had made an effort to try to work with the people and remedy the situation. Maybe that combination would have worked, but the drought alone didn't work. So maybe that explains to us why Hashem didn't bring it to begin with, because Hashem doesn't just impose drought in order to destroy. If it's not going to benefit the people, there's no point. So Eliyahu's problem is that, yeah, he's justified, but he's not effective. In, in And so he, and uh, Hashem gives him some time to reflect on that, but he doesn't really uh, emerge with any new insight uh, until the river dries up and now he has to move to his next destination. Can we, can we say the same thing like Eliyahu, he's, he's not supposed to be changing the people necessarily. He's supposed to be advising the king and changing the king to change the people. Right. He, he, just devil's advocate. He's, he's done his job. And that he's relayed a message. I mean, what's he supposed to do? Just eat a dead horse? Well, I, I think uh, I think that's what you're saying is probably exactly what he thought. What, what more can I say? Uh, I, I did my job and now I, uh, you know, it's up to them now. The ball is in their court now. What 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 else am I going to do? They're not going to want to see me now. They're not going to want to talk to me. You know what else can I do for them? Something like that. In fact, she can also say, "Look, Hashem is the one who told them to run away after He made that declaration. It's not like Hashem told them to stick around. Told them to run away." But I think that, but it doesn't say how long he should run away. And I think maybe the point was that eventually he was supposed to say, "Hey." Now is the time for me to go and say, hey, guys, let's try to, you know, remedy, you know, to remedy the situation of the drought. Uh, I'm going to teach you some Torah and we're going to do this and that. He doesn't do any of that. What, what is the role of the Navi? Is it just to invite the king? Like, like what Moshe's role wasn't just to invite the king, but then to lead the people. No, oh, yeah. I mean, the, oh, the most direct way for Navi in that time to affect policy was obviously to reach the king. But many of the Nevi'im spoke to the people. Uh, obviously, Moshe Rabbeinu, but even Yirmiyahu and Yecheskel and even Yishayahu, they all went and they preached to the people, actually. They didn't preach to the kings only. They did talk to the kings. Like Yishayahu speaks to the to Chizkiyahu, but he also speaks to the people a lot. And Yirmiyahu tried to speak to the kings, um, but he also spoke to the people and got himself in trouble. But, uh, but he spoke to the I people. Can't, can't a very successful example where gave the success of the Navi by the change of the people. Yeah. The most, the most successful one is Shmuel. He's the most successful Navi of all time. Even then, people asked for a king. It wasn't the ideal. It wasn't the way it was. Well, yeah, they asked for a king when he was retiring. But um, uh, during his career, he was very, very successful. Um, I, I would say the most successful of any, of any Navi. Because he actually took them... If you... It, Forget about wanting a king. If you if you take a look at where they were when Shmuel came on the scene, how low of a level they were, that the Kohanim of Shiloh thought that the Aron was a magic box that you bring out to the war and uh, and it will save you in the battlefield. And that's what they believed the Aron was. Like uh, they their level of understanding of what the Aron was was similar to that of the Plishtim. Like they, they were very unsophisticated, totally corrupt because of course, the corruption thrives on ignorance. So when you, uh, when you, when the people, if the people had become educated about what true Judaism was, they wouldn't have followed people like the Bnei Eli. So Bnei Eli 
benefited from keeping the Jews uneducated and, uh, and, and primitive in their ways of thinking about religion. And the whole institution of the Mikdash, which was supposed to educate people and bring them closer to God, completely was driven into the ground and became a corrupt uh, money-making business under the leadership of, if you can call it that, of the Bnei Eli. And along comes Shmuel, and he completely rehabilitated the people to the point that even when they wanted a uh, king, they wanted a king ostensibly to be a nation of God, not to be uh, not to be uh, anything less than that. Uh, and they they expected the king, and Shmuel expected Shaul to be his partner. So for the beginning of the, their career, Shmuel and Shaul are working in tandem with each other the whole time. The first time they have a falling out. They're able to pick themselves back up for the Amalek thing. After the Amalek thing, then you know, then it's all is lost. But but Shmuel and Shaul ideally would have continued to work together, and that would have been a success story for uh, for Shmuel. So, and in fact, Shmuel was extremely distressed when Shaul was rejected. So, he, he, meaning even Shmuel himself thought that Shaul ultimately, Bediavad at least, you know, turned out to be a good choice because he wanted. He might have been against the idea of choosing a king. But he actually thought Shaul was so good that he, he was crying all night over, uh, over Shaul being rejected because he felt that Shaul was his Talmud. Like Shaul became a student. He was not a perfect student. He was like a B student instead of an A student, you know. He was trying to work with him and uh, maybe minus, I'm not sure. But, you know, he was trying to work with him. And, uh, and he felt like all of a sudden the student got pulled uh, away from him. He was kicked out of the school. So... Uh, so, you know, so Shmuel actually had higher hopes for Shaul than probably most of us who are reading the story. Because we, because he, when, a, when, when you have a student, you see their potential and you want them to, uh, you know, it's like, uh, uh, you know, uh, in uh, Kung Fu Panda, you know, the, uh, if you ever saw that movie, but, um, you know, the, the, uh, the master has the bad, I forgot what his name was, Tai Lung or Tai Ling or whatever his name was, the bad one. <laughs> Uh, with I don't know, but it's an old movie. But you've seen? Have you seen it? No, possibly you've seen it less than two times. No, I've probably seen it a few times with my kids. Watch it in the video and stuff like that. No, but it's a, it's actually a funny story. Kung Fu Panda, whatever. The master had like an, a disciple that the disciple he thought he was going to be the next master, but the supreme master was like, no, this is not the right. Uh, this is not the right guy. He doesn't have the right character. And the master who trained him for all that time was really, really upset because he felt like he invested everything in this uh, in this disciple, and he turns out to be, uh, you know, he's not the chosen one. And of course, the one who was not the chosen one was even more upset and like wanted to use his super uh, kung fu to kill everybody. But that's a whole other story. The point is that when you have a student that you invested in and you raised them up. You want to believe that they're going to succeed. You don't want to give that, give up on them. So Shmuel himself became very invested in Shaul, and uh, and and I think that you know Eliyahu Navi also eventually begins to believe that Achav has the potential for change. He obviously believed that in the beginning. I'm 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 sure that he did, because Eliyahu obviously is not a fool. Far from it. And he realizes that all of Ahab's attempts to erase Judaism from the kingdom demonstrate an insecurity about that very thing. And so he feels like he's the very guy who's going to be able to be receptive. 
if I can apply the right pressure, he will be receptive. It's just that he took too hard line of an approach. He didn't show the path forward. He just blocked him. And, and, and that didn't work. And, you know, it's similar to, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a, uh, if you, you, if you see a person who, uh, from Eliyahu Navi's perspective, Achav is a person, like, I, I don't know if I ever told you the story that um, I knew this Russian guy that uh, he, he was a religious guy. I still kind of know him, but I haven't spoken to him in a long, long time. This was probably 30 years ago. So he was telling me the story, but he, he came from Russia. A, a lot of kids came from Russia to Brooklyn in the, uh, you know, let's say 30, 40 years ago, whatever it was. And the Shivot that wanted to like take these Soviet Russian kids and like give them Jewish religion in a Shiva. So they basically told the parents, look, I know we're religious and everything. Don't worry about that. Just put them in the school. We'll teach them English so they can function in America. So the secular, you know, Jewish parents are like, okay, let them go to the yeshiva. So a couple hundred kids go to this yeshiva, this Russian, you know, where they had Russian speaking teachers, whatever. And so this guy told me, he's like, I was in the class with the rabbi teaching whatever. Most of the kids, he said 99% of the kids would just listen to the rabbi, didn't say anything. At the end, they would get 100 on the test. They left, no more connection to Judaism, nothing. He said there were two kids in the class. Everything the rabbi said, they argued with it. Everything he said, they argued, they fought, they challenged, they wouldn't stop. He said those two kids were the ones that became religious. The rest of them didn't become religious. Because when you're fighting that hard, it's because you care about it. Something about it bothers you. You care about it. And that's what I think Eliyahu saw in Ahav. He's so desperate to be against Judaism because he cares about it. There's something about it that he can't get away from. And so Eliyahu thought, if I apply some pressure, maybe he'll become my disciple the way that Shaul became a disciple of Shemuel. It didn't exactly work out that way because the problem was that Eliyahu, that, that Ahav had a different Rebbe named Izevel who had a very different message. You know, but that was the, that's really the whole thing. The whole thing is Ahav is kind of caught in the middle. He's actually, you, you can develop some sympathy for him um, because he's kind of caught in the middle between two strong influences and he doesn't know where to go. But we'll see what happens with Eliyahu's development tomorrow, how he eventually does return. Hashem places pressure on him to recognize that his approach isn't working slowly he, like Hashem always works, is that he slowly turns up the heat on the person to try to give them as much opportunity to exercise their free choice as possible in making the right decision. And then eventually Eliyahu will come back and we'll see how he approaches things the next time around. He realizes that he needs to do something to educate the people. He can't just leave them with the drought and expect them, you know, and expect a, a miracle to happen. So Hashem, we'll, we'll do tomorrow, but so Parashatama will continue and we'll, we'll do the other uh, sugya of the, uh, of the Gemara. And then, then maybe the last two days we'll do the Agadot. If you want, we can pick whatever, look through, figure out whatever Agadot you want to do. We'll do them. You know, there's really weird ones in Masechet Tani. There's this good stuff. Okay. All right, thank you very much. Okay, see you guys. Uh, see you guys. Bye-bye.